just like that children's story said. You want to clean us and help us and get rid of all the bad that has come upon us. And so, Lord, as we look at this concept of a glorious flock, we want to be a part of that flock. We want your love in our hearts. We want you, Jesus, to cleanse us with your wonderful words, we pray. And send the Holy Spirit to guide us and guide, the Holy, guide us with the Holy Spirit to hear your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last installment of this One Flock series. We've discovered that God wants to call a flock together from every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every faith group. He wants to call them together, but at the end of time, they're going to be a glorious flock. And there are some key teachings that this flock will know that will help them focus on Jesus even more. And I've told you before about Shauna, my sheep. I went on vacation and I came back and she's, she's kind of been a little skittish. Uh, she's stayed away from me. And in fact, I think it's because of all these little stickers that are in her and she's kind of, we're trying to go through her fur and get them out as well. But this was Shauna before we sheared her. And you can tell, especially if you get to 90 degree weather or 100 degree weather, that'd be really hot. And you can imagine how she felt after we sheared her. And that's what she looks like afterwards. There she is. She's running around. She's, she'll, she'll kick her feet backwards and jump around and, bing, and just, just spring around everywhere. And she seems really happy, especially after she was sheared. And something happened after they got sheared. One day, I had them on one portion of the pasture. And we don't have a huge pasture, just a couple acres of land. But I had them on this one section because I cross-fenced it to kind of rotate them around. And as she was over there and with her other companion, Kindness, I started noticing the rain coming in, and I thought, oh man, I didn't get the gate open. But it had been some time, I had something else come up, and I, I just put off the thought of going and putting them towards the sheep shed. And by the time I got out there, the rain had been going quite a, quite a while. And so I finally got them over to the sheep shed. Next day, I checked them over. They were just fine. But the, something had happened in that rainstorm to their wool. I mean, their wool, before all of that, was kind of a light, you could see the... the the oils and stuff of their skin in it. And, and after that rainstorm, something happened to the wool. It was pure white where it was white, and the black was just standing out in huge contrast. And I thought to myself, you know, I made a mistake as a shepherd. I should probably have got them in the sheep shed before that. Really no chance of them getting too sick from a storm like that, but, you know, something could happen. But as I looked at that white wool, a thought came to me, isn't that amazing? I mean, this one rainstorm washing this sheep better than I could even soap her up and wash her, and she's totally clean, beautiful sheep. And as I thought of the shepherd analogy we've been looking at, we've learned the shepherd rescues his flock, he provides for them, but he also cleanses his flock even better than a rainstorm. The Bible says in Ezekiel 34, I'll raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land. It's talking about his flock, and he's saying, I'm going to provide a plant that causes no harm, unlike those foxtails, unlike other things. In fact, they'll eat those foxtails when they're young, but at a certain point, they quit eating them because they don't taste very good anymore, and they're going to seed. And you can imagine eating one of those foxtail seeds and getting it down into your, in the softer parts of your throat and all of that and what kind of damage that would cause. But he's talking about a plant of renown. He's going to feed his sheep something, a plant of renown. This actually harkens, if you look into it, a lot of detail, back to the Garden of Eden. The very plant of his name. That's what the word renown means. This plant of honor, and this honor in the Old Testament is attached to the name of God, to God himself. What plant is that? What plant is it that we're going to be eating in the earth made new? 
this tree of life and these beautiful waters. And so this prophecy in Ezekiel was that a shepherd would come that would eventually lead them to the place where they would eat that beautiful plant again. They would be no more consumed with hunger. They would not bear shame of the heathen anymore. They'd be totally this beautiful, cleansed flock. They will do it by knowing the Lord himself. They would know that the Lord is with them, personally present with them, leading them. And that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord, and you are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. So all this pasture analogy, all this sheep analogy, all this idea of the shepherd, he's flat out saying, the reality of it is, God is the shepherd, you are my people, follow me, and I will lead you to life, life evermore. And so, as we've talked about and asked this question several times, if we are his flock, do we know his voice? Do we follow the lamb wherever he goes? Do we follow what he's told us, no matter how much it feels like it's costing us at the time? Because that's really the crucial thing at the end of time. And if the flock analogy doesn't do it for you, well, then maybe this analogy would do work a lot better. This idea of the bride. This is actually an actual picture of an Israeli bride. Here she is, she, a Jewish bride. And she's been decked out, and this one's really modest compared to some. Some are just have all of these ornaments, basically the dowry all over her. Here she is, and she's taking the cup that her betrothed has pledged to her. They drink out of that one cup, and they say no other will drink out of that cup. And she's taking that cup right there. But if you don't equate your relationship with the Lord with the flock very well, for me it was quite distant analogy until I even had sheep. So but I do equate it with a relationship, a personal relationship like no other, this idea of marriage. And so his flock are none other than his people, his bride. So he says a lot about his bride, doesn't he, in the Bible? You go to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look it up now in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 onward. You can, of course, read about how his bride went whoring around in the Old Testament, reaching out to other gods. But as you get to this text in Ephesians chapter 5, talking about husbands and wives, Paul is very clear. We are the bride of Christ. And it, look at this a little more carefully. Ephesians 5, you talk, it talks about in verse 22, submitting to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husband's head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And we all know that the head, of course, is attached to the body, and they are mutually helping one another. Verse 24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, and it's qualified as to the Lord before, right? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. An occasion happens in earth's history where not only does a shepherd need to give his life and stand and fight to the death against Satan and sin, but here's an analogy where a husband gives himself fully for his wife. He totally lays out his life, dies so that his bride will live. That's what this is talking about. It's none other than pointing us to the cross, and it talks about how that is how we are to love one another that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be, she should be holy and without blemish. 
And so merges the two analogies of the sheep and the bride, of the flock and his bride. Christ's flock, Christ's bride. Where is this analogy, this idea of uh, without blemish normally found? It's with the sheep. It's with bringing that, that lamb and sacrificing that lamb without blemish. And so we find his church gets to the point where it is without blemish because it's focusing on his words, the words of the lamb himself, Jesus Christ. And it says he will present his church glorious. That's the glorious flock. That's the glorious church. Without spot, without wrinkle, better than any rainstorm could ever wash us is the Holy Spirit guiding us to the words of Jesus, cleansing us, washing us, taking everything out that's impure, everything out that is stuck or trying to destroy our lives, he takes it and cleanses it out of us through the words of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, was, we are told, is in John chapter 5, will testify of the words of Jesus, will point us to the words of Jesus, will merely echo the words of Jesus, will say the things that he has told, and he will bring them to our attention. And so the word of God, the bride is washed by the words of the groom. And if you have been a part of a relationship that maybe wasn't so ideal, maybe that doesn't sound too appealing. Maybe the words weren't exactly ideal. I've seen homes like that. But this is describing an ideal this is saying it's like, and it's something that we, we, we do go through with pre, premarital counseling, one of the very first things that has to happen when a relationship is devitalized is they have to reestablish communication. If they don't, there is really very little hope. This is saying that not only is communication open between Christ and his bride, but Christ literally compliments and praises and builds her up and just constantly is talking good about her. We can all learn a lesson from this, can't we? Our human nature is tempted to go negative a lot of times. This bride, the church, is washed by the words of, this, of its bridegroom. She basks in them. It's kind of like when a couple would meet, even in an arranged marriage in the ancient Near East, they would, they would make promises to each other, and that woman would, would take seriously the promises of her bridegroom, and that bridegroom would take seriously his bride's promise to them. They would, they would cherish that promise until the day that they were together forever. Imagine they meet, they go home their separate ways until the betrothal period is over with, the engagement period is over with, and they're constantly rehearsing the fact that they have made a promise to somebody and that person has made a promise to them. That's the type of words we're talking about. Jesus has made a promise to us. What is our promise to him? It's a love relationship that it stems from these promises that are made and that are kept, that's what will present his church glorious. That includes a lot of teachings of Scripture we have emphasized. All of the teachings of Scripture emphasize this same relationship. Like John 14, 1-3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. The best translation is rooms because in the ancient Near East, a father has the home that eventually the bride is going to come to and stay with, with her groom until he gets enough capital and money to purchase another piece of land and, and basically go out on his own. And if a father of the groom has many rooms, that's a very promising proposal. That's saying it's not just this little small square footage room that most of them are packed to in the cities. It's this actually a beautiful villa type situation. Plenty of room. You guys are going to have a good start. You're going to have this relationship blossom before it goes off into the sunset, if you will. 
And if you notice in John 14, he goes on and says, and basically gives a groom's promise. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, which is typical ancient Near Eastern proposal language, I will come back and receive you unto myself that where, you, where I am, there you may be also. That's what John 14 is, a proposal to his bride. So we as his bride, and I'm, I'm a man, but I still think these words are, are basically saying a, a relationship beyond all other means I need to rehearse those words in my mind. Remember that he has promised to me that he is coming back, not even in the future tense in the Greek. He says, I am coming back in the Greek. Present tense. We call it a futuristic present, which means everything that is going on in the world today is pressing towards that end, even as he utters those words. And that relationship, we know the disciples drank from that cup, didn't they, before Jesus went up to heaven. They, they basically pledged themselves to Jesus. And we do the same thing every time we have communion. In a couple of weeks, we'll have communion. And so this relationship begins with when, this idea of, of washing and being glorious begins when the church realizes the source of their eternal life is the, Jesus himself. Not themselves, Jesus is the source. So, the church must hear his words to be washed by them. You must hear his words to be saved by him. You must believe those words, trust those words, no matter what, even if it brings you to a dungeon cell, even if it brings you to a place where you're far from family or friends, even if it brings you to a place of this huge loneliness, trust him. John 5, 24 says, those who hear my word and believe in him that sent me, because if you believe the words of Jesus, you're truly trusting the Father too. You have everlasting life shall not come into judgment, but have come from death to life. You will not be condemned in the judgment if you're trusting the words of Jesus. The judgment then, if you, as far as an executive judgment, punishment judgment, it's only for those who choose to continue and to allow those seeds of the devil, those tares, if you will, those, those falsehoods about the Father, allow them to stick and take root and to harm and wound them to the point where they see no other option but to continue in that misery. But if we hear the words of Jesus and believe them, we have everlasting life. The, the, the transaction has occurred already. Heaven sees you as saved. Now the question is, what is your life going to look like after that? It's going to be a glorious life. It's going to change your life. It's not going to leave you the same as you were found. John chapter 5, verse 36. We've had that as a memory verse a while back with our beginning of the year focus. Jesus says he had a, has a testimony weightier than that of John for the very works which the Father has sent him to do. Testify that he has been sent by the Father. And he goes on and says, you have neither seen his form nor hear his, heard his words because you're not receiving Jesus. You search the scriptures. For in them, in the facts, you think you have eternal life. But Jesus says, they are they which testify of me from beginning to end, to reject any portion of this book. And I understand, I understand there's wars in this book. I understand there's torture. It just seems like, why would you annihilate a whole group of people? I understand all of that. But I also understand the context of some of that. And I truly believe from beginning to end, this is a book that testifies of Jesus. If you, if you, if you get wound up in some of the Old Testament things that happened, take for instance, wiping out a whole tribe of people then you better just go out and research the culture of that people and see why 
them sacrificing their children in the fires, them flaying children, going and mutilating themselves, all of this stuff, why that was so abhorrent, why God wanted it wiped out, was because it was totally defacing the human form to the point where people didn't see the Creator anymore. So you start looking into those cultures very clearly, and you'll find that this book does testify that at a certain point you do hold evil in check. At a certain point you do say enough. At a certain point we do want the law. Like it's kind of like when we were, I was driving the other day and this vehicle just whoosh went right by me. I, thought, I sure, sure wish the sheriff was right over there. We at a certain point do want that justice. And that's what you find happening a lot in the Old Testament. True light, true love would not have survived those cultures if God had not held them in check. And so I believe all the words of Scripture are the words of the Father echoing down through time to us and trying to cleanse us and present us a good picture of the Father so that we can be saved. So how can this take place? How can we have this cleansing and all of this and this eternal life? Well, it tells you right there in John 5, but John 17. And next year, I'm going to do a whole series on John 17. I think I'll spend the whole first quarter of, of next year on John 17. It's just so packed. It says, and this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God. This is Jesus speaking, that they might know thee. And Jesus is praying to his Father out loud. Read the whole prayer. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Knowing Jesus is knowing the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Eternal life is in the Father. And the only way we know him is through the words of Jesus. So the bridegroom is going to tarry at the end of time. We're told that in Matthew 25, the bridegroom tarries. And what does his bride do at the time? She readies herself. What does the servant do when the bridegroom tarries? He's, he or she's found faithful. They're found faithful. Ready to meet the master. Ready to meet the bridegroom. And that's the call that comes to each one of us. We have to prepare ourselves every day to meet him. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. We know that things have a certain time frame in prophecy, but we also know they could happen, boom, really rapid. So this is the call. Know Jesus is the call from the garden gate. There he is, Jesus himself, standing. His name wasn't Jesus then, but it was, it was Yahweh, or the Lord in some versions. And he's standing there positioning these flaming swords. And he watches them leave. And he still wants them to come back and have life. He's going to provide the way. It's down at the cross when he does crush the head of the serpent, when he does offer that sacrifice. It's down at the resurrection. The same call is know the Father, know the Son. There he is. And at Pentecost, they spend that 40 days with Jesus and he begins to clarify in his kingdom. He's trying to get rid of and wash their minds of this idea of, of earthly power and kingdoms. And so the bride needs to be faithful right now. And the reason why I feel so passionately about that is because events are already underway for Jesus to return. If you don't believe that, read Matthew 24 and Luke 21, look at the paper. Uh, spend more time reading than the Bible than the paper, of course. But you will see, it's so close. It's just, and you could say, you've been saying that for years, and you've been an Adventist for many years, and oh, yeah, okay, but keep reading, you'll see. Our need is to keep watchful during these times. Because in Matthew 25, as you read the words of Jesus, in verses 10 and 13, something has already taken place before this processional takes place and they go around shouting, the bridegroom's coming, the bridegroom's coming. Before Jesus utters these words, in their minds, several events would have taken place. The proposal would have taken place, which John the Baptist really prepared the way for that. Then the bridegroom comes, meets his bride, 
a processional begins. They're separated for a time. Then they come together for a supper and the cup, and they are separated no more. Where are we at in this? Now, wouldn't you say, if you're taking the whole you know, understanding, we're, we're basically right in here. We're, we're getting ready to come together for that, that final cup. Isn't that what he said? I will drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Isn't that what Revelation says? That basically there's a supper of the Lamb. So we are right there. We'll be eventually, soon and very soon, not separated anymore. And so what are we supposed to be doing at the time? Well, the whole chapter of Matthew 25 tells us what we're to be doing. Verse 10 says, While they went to buy, these are the foolish virgins, the bridegroom came. What were they supposed to have been doing at that time? They were supposed to be ready. That's what the next verse says. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. There is something we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be ready to go into the marriage right now. That was spoken years ago by Jesus. And here we are years later, even more so supposed to be ready now. Afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say, I know you not. That is really the crux. If they had known him, if they had been more than just flippant observers in the whole thing, they would have known to be ready because it would have happened at any time. It, it wasn't just some casual thing they could just dismiss. He's saying, if you'd really known me, you would have been ready. You would have been waiting for my voice. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And so now is the time to know him. Now is the time to be ready for him. And I believe, especially since a loud cry went out in the 1800s that even formed part of our church, the, the foundation of our church, we've been living in that time even more so. At the appointed time, the bridegroom came, not to the earth as the people expected, because they expected that, and they've expected that several times so far in history, but to the ancient of days in heaven, to the marriage, the reception of his kingdom. Basically, he's preparing that supper for us right now. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. They that were not to be present in person at the marriage, for it takes place in heaven while they are upon the earth. So right now, it's already underway. And we are to be there, not in person, but by faith, we are to be there. We are to be entering into that. The followers of Christ are to wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. And we'll look at Luke 12 in a minute. But they are to understand his work and to follow him by faith as he goes in before God. He is in before God now, trying to wrap up earth's history, trying to make sure that everybody hears the call, that everybody's being washed, that will be washed, that everybody who's going to be clean, who will be clean. That's why Revelation says, let him who is filthy remain filthy. Let him who is unjust remain unjust. And so we don't want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of the ones who are just. We are to follow him by faith as he goes in before God, it is in this sense that they are to said to go into the marriage. We are to partake of it now. Luke 12 says, Ye yourselves, and that's the book Great Controversy, Ye yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding. So you start mixing these, it's kind of confusing, but you start looking at this carefully. Something is going on in heaven. He's not just looking at his flock. He's actually trying to reach and woo as many people as possible. Peter says that he delays not because he's lazy or somehow slack concerning his promises. It's because he wants as many as possible to be saved. That's what he's doing right now. 
That's a lot of work. I'm only one person, and I can only reach so many people at a certain point, and, and you feel overwhelmed sometimes because you can't get to everybody to see everybody and encourage them or whatever. But can you imagine God, and he's this omnipotent God. He, he's, he's laboring for each person that you long for, that, that others that you know long for. That's what he's doing. He wants them there. And he's trying to get us serious as well so that we will be glorious and washed and people will see his glory and then say, well, what is this thing? And we'll point them to Jesus. So he will come and return from the wedding and when he comes and knocks, they, will, they may open unto him immediately. Revelation 3 says to the church of Laodicea, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my word and opens up unto me, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That's what he's doing right now each one of us, especially in Laodicea. What do we do? We can do something as well, and this is our answer for our young people. What does a bride do at the end of time? She's focusing on Jesus. She's staying connected with Jesus. She's entering by faith to where he is now, but there's something specific that he's not given angels to do, but given us to do. Revelation chapter 14 For those of you who have been coming to the last day of prophecy or other Sabbath uh, studies that are talking about the Sabbath, this is really where we tie the Sabbath into our daily lives. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Pause right there. Who did he give the gospel to to preach to everybody on the earth? Go back to Matthew 28. He gave it to the church. All right, so right there you know Angelos in the Greek, the angel, their messenger, another translation. These messengers are going to the, to, to the world. You see that over there on that banner at the bottom there? There's three flames going around the world, representing the three angels. And the world, you can kind of see it by contrast there. Down below, it's the cross. That's what his church is focusing on, him dying, but also he's paid the price and he's risen. And the open Bible. So the three angels' messages according to Matthew 28, are given by the church. Now, will he in mercy provide dreams, visions, and all, all that? Yeah, he will. But he has given the task of presenting this to other humans, to humans. He is risen. He talks to the disciples for 40 days, reconfirms the commission to them, gives it to them, and says, something about sharing this will bring you closer to me. You all know that's the case because what happens is you know that little piece of literature you carry around in your pocket and, and God, Lord's like, put it over here and then you find out later why and you look back and you see he's orchestrated the whole thing for not only that person to hear but for you to be amazed that he arranged it that way. You know that bank teller I told you about? I, I gave her that Sabbath rest pamphlet. I was in the bank the other day and she seemed like a totally nicer person. I mean, she was nice there but she, just totally continuing sincere nice and we began to talking talking. I didn't ask her if she read it or not, but I'm going to continue that relationship because here's a person who's getting ready to be married, and here I am kind of giving her some, she's asking me some questions, so I'm kind of talking to her briefly, but I'm thinking to myself, the Lord arranged me to go to town that day when I normally would have gone to town that day, and then there, this person's window was open. So you start looking back, you start seeing how he's arranged everything. I call it, and I can't claim and coin the term, omni-togetherness. He works all things together. And when you see that, especially when you're sharing a message about him, you're like, why would you use me? You know, it's just, uh, it's humbling and it's, it's, it's exciting at the same time. 
So part of washing of God's flock, his bride, is this message in Revelation 14. It's the message that they're sharing, so they've got to believe it. They've got to somehow attach it to Jesus. It has to somehow cleanse and help them as well. And they're sharing it with the whole world, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. By the time this message gets to its full fruition, the judgment has already begun. The preparations for He who is unjust and He who is just have already begun basically become almost to fruition. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. You can continue on down there. They also give a warning message about Babylon and false religion, and some think that's harsh. But really, if you look at all false religion, it totally detracts from the words of Jesus. And it's trying to make inroads and pollute, just like those tears into the side of that poor animal, trying to get in there and just, just go all the way and far in as they can to the death of that very thing. And so Revelation 14, there's a message that his flock not only believes because it's about Jesus, but it washes them as they share it as well. And so the voice of Jesus comes through his bride. You ever meet a married couple? Some of you are that way. I've visited you in your homes. And you know that they could complete each other's word. You know, like someone started a sentence, and, and you're visiting with them, and all of a sudden the other one kind of chimes in, and it's the exact you know, thing, place where the other one was going. This is what's going on with Jesus right now. He's trying to have that kind of connection with us so we can really finish his word. That's pretty solemn. Do I have that kind of daily connection where I could very easily finish his word? That's the ideal. So Revelation 14 is, you find noticed in here, the fourth commandment enshrined. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the springs of waters. That is pointing you back to not only the fourth commandment, but in the springs of water phrase, it's pointing to the one whose voice is like many waters in Revelation as well. So that commandment is linked to Jesus himself. So how do we keep all of God's commandments? Well, the answer is right there in the text as well. It's the everlasting gospel. It's this holy reverence for him, this fearing God for, all who, for who he is. This morning I was reading Psalm 84. It said, How lovely is his dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. And it goes on and describes. And I was just taking that verse by verse and taking attributes of God and saying, here's an attribute, here's an attribute. What does it mean to me? And I was spending time doing that. And I was amazed. One of them says, you are a mighty king. And yet it talks about how close we can come to him. Going into the presence of God is like slow motion compared to everything else. Being in his presence is overwhelming. Revelation 14 says that you not only have that overwhelming fear God experience, but you also have this joy of the everlasting gospel. That's how you can keep all the commandments. And the gospel says basically that there is no way by yourself you needed Jesus. You need a resident goodness in you. The whole Godhead bodily in you to keep all of his commandments. He'll write them on your heart, but you need to continually foster that. And the Sabbath is really the way to foster that. The Sabbath anchors us in creation. It shows us every single day that today is a day of salvation because every day you're relying upon him and then you get to Sabbath, the capstone. And what did Jesus do? He rested in the tomb on the Sabbath. Hebrews says, 
there remains a rest for the people of God, and it mentions the day of salvation, and it mentions the Sabbath. It links together the Sabbath and salvation. So, my question is, did Jesus have to rest in the tomb after he died? Did he really? He, he said, I can lay down my life that I may take it up again. He chose to lay in the tomb for the Sabbath because that was his custom and habit from eternity. Before there ever was a Jewish nation, before there ever was uh, all of these things going on in the Middle East, before creation of mankind, he had that. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when he established the Sabbath with Adam and Eve, he had already been practicing that. So he chose to lay in the tomb for that time and then take up his life on the first day and start the work of sharing that with the world. And did he have to rest after making our world? Physically, does God get tired? They find he's all-powerful. No, he, choo- he chose to do that. So the Sabbath every week comes as a reminder of his salvation. And it points forward to the second coming because in Isaiah, it talks about from one new moon to, new moon to the other, and this new heaven and new earth from one month to another, we will come to, from one Sabbath to another, one new moon to another, we will come together and worship him. Week by week, month by month, all through eternity. And the Sabbath also counters all the deceptions of the last days. All of them. That's a pretty broad statement, you say. But I believe it, and I'll tell you why. The Sabbath deals with false views of baptism. Because if you believe that, for instance, the first day of the week, it's in honor of the resurrection, you take away the meaning of baptism, because baptism is in honor of the resurrection. So it counters that by believing in the true Sabbath. It counters evolution. It count, you start going out of the popular theories of the day, pantheism, this and that. If you just remember the Creator every single week and that He is God and that you're His humble creation, it solves a whole bunch of problems and deception. And it will solve the ultimate deception at the end over worship and revelation. So the Sabbath is very important. And I believe the Sabbath also tells us the voice of the Father. At creation, it wasn't just the Lord coming, the personal agent of the Godhead. It was, in the beginning, God created. It's more than just one agent of the Godhead. It's all of them together, even the voice of the Father. At salvation, at the cross, Father, forgive them, he says. So it wasn't just Jesus saying, I forgive them. It was the Father being willing to forgive them, too. The Father was willing to forgive. Otherwise, the earthquake would have split the world. He could have easily just shattered the world at that point for killing his son. So he showed forgiveness at the cross. The second coming, the Sabbath points us forward to that, and that's the Father who's saying, bring my children home. Read John 17. Jesus says, I'll bring them with me also. And so if we recognize the Sabbath as the words of Jesus himself, he gave the Ten Commandments, he's the one who kept it, he's the one who it points forward to, then we also recognize the Father's voice behind that. And really, Jesus' words are just an echo of the Father. Like Father, like Son. So salvation and creation every week. You've heard the saying, I can keep any day I want. Or, you know what, I worship God every day. Let me show you why that's totally deficient. Because, yes, every day I worship God. Every day of creation in, in the Genesis account was a day of creation. Every weekday. Six days, right? But you rest in that creation on the Sabbath. You join omnipotence on the Sabbath. And it's kind of like 
when Joshua was standing there and, and, and he's told, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. Was Jericho really holy ground? They were coming to destroy the city, right? That area was basically judged. But who made it holy? God, by his very presence, made it holy. God, by his very presence, makes this time together as a church family in your Sabbath school classes and the mission stories and the encouraging each other and the fellowship. The whole day, he, his presence is resting on this day. And I can tell you right now, his Shekinah glory didn't rest anywhere else but in Israel. It was nowhere else resting over some tabernacle in the wilderness over in, say, Russia during that time. It was right there at that place that he chose so that eventually you and I could read the story. So when someone says, I can worship God every day, yes, worship him every day. That's showing that you're sanctified. Excuse me, you're, you're, you're justified. But to be cleansed, you need to join him where he says to join him. That's sanctification. So every Friday, I rest on Friday night because I don't have much of rest on Sabbath morning and onward. I bless. It's like God blessed the day. I try to be a blessing to others, and I'm sanctified. He blessed it. He rests on the Sabbath day. He blessed it, and he sanctified it. Those three things happen every single week, whether it's here at church or whether you're out, even in nature, opening up that Bible on Sabbath because maybe you're away from church family. This day is holy because he made it holy. And he sanctified it, meaning, like Jesus said, sanctify them by thy word, truth, thy words are truth. So every Sabbath, we should especially spend time reading through and focusing on Jesus, even more than we do during every other day of the week. So the weekday worship, yes, worship him every day. But remember, there's only one day when Jesus rested in the arms of the Father, and that was the Sabbath. There's only one day when you rest in the arms of the Father, and I rest in the arms of the Father, and that's the seventh-day Sabbath. That's why it's holy, and that's why it's going to be there in the earth made new. And so, the Sabbath then also says, he's coming soon, which means we have a job to do to take that beautiful message, not just of the Sabbath, because it's the Sabbath, to me, there is no separation between the Sabbath and the Savior. There is none. Okay, if you try to bury the Sabbath with me, then basically you're burying the Savior. Again, you're putting him in the tomb. Because it's linked to him. And so I want to share him, and in the sharing, I become more like him as well. So Sabbath it talks about justification, sanctification, glorification every single week. So then what makes the flock glorious? <laughs> Lord even showed my flaw right there, didn't he? I had my screen resolution off, so I typed that in there to remember it. <laughs> I still have some refining to do, don't I? Not perfect. Here's the text. What makes us glorious? The Lord descended in the cloud. That's his glory coming down. Stood with him there. That's Moses. Standing with him standing with the hymn is Moses. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is what makes Moses shine and glorious. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed this as well. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering. You could unpack those all day long forever. Abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what Mo was proclaimed to Moses. That's what Moses is going down to the mountain, and we're still reading it today. And that 
will by no means clear the guilty. He is also just. If someone chooses to refuse all of that that's been proclaimed, they're now guilty. And he will hold them accountable because, in essence, they will join themselves with other gods. There's only one God. I mean, you start reading about, you're my God. Well, there is only one God. Everything else is just false. Everything else is a, would, is a wannabe creation. And they'll join themselves with Satan himself eventually. And so he will not clear those people. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. So when you look at your own spirituality, remember there's a lot of baggage behind you that you may have to look at and say, God, please help me with these things as well. And the decisions we make today can affect generations down the line as well. And so here is this, this beautiful message is proclaimed. It uses the word twice, the name of the Lord, and his name there is graciousness, mercy, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, and in truth, forgiveness. This is what causes Moses to shine, besides just the physical shining of Moses. He makes haste, he bows down, and what's the result of hearing that message? He worships. And that's the same message, if you want to get technical here and start tracing it down, that you're going to find in Revelation 14. A message of his goodness, a message of his love, a message, yes, of judgment of those who choose not to follow. And what is the result? We worship him. So that's the glory. And so glorification in Revelation 18, when I look at that now, it's coming because the very character of God is in his people. Not something you go to the store and buy. Something you go to him and say, Lord, change me into the person you'd have me to be. Help me to be that long-suffering person. Help me to be merciful when I need to be. Help others be merciful to me when I need it. This is the result of seeing his glory, that you become more like what Moses saw. And if that takes place, you begin to shine. And that's the result of his glory, and that's, the result is worship, and then eventually you share with others. It changes your words. It changes your actions. You begin to think about him all the time. And so without this inward change in Revelation 18, the only other option is Babylon, is judgment. And in Babylon, you have no garment that will cover you from God. And those type of people will cry out for the rocks to fall on them. They will not enjoy the voice of Jesus when it comes from heaven because they have not enjoyed it now. So the glorification, the glorious church, the glorious bride, it's all linked to the very character of God. And so we daily need him to fill us and weekly need him to give us that capstone, that double portion. We need that every single week. So what makes the flock glorious? It's that connection with the Lord and that worship that results from that connection with the Lord. So tonight, you know, we have the final episode of Last Day of Prophecy. You know, Jesus is in these messages. I know there's been comments that they could have been put together differently because it seems like he's combining several sermons, but, but nonetheless, it's about Jesus. It's about the prophecies of Jesus. He's coming soon. And so even in those types of things, we can focus on Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You will be a glorious church. You will be a glorious flock. You will be with me forever. I will present you faultless before the throne. Glorious, clean, not afraid evermore. You know, Shauna there, she doesn't seem to be coming close lately. I'm trying to figure out why. 
And I think it's because there are some things that literally need to be taken away from her, these little pokies and everything. And you get close to her and, she, and you try to take one of them, and she jerks away. And you're thinking, just hold still. I will help you. Don't, don't jerk away. Don't be afraid of a little bit of this. It's going to be fine when it's all said and done. And it took one of us basically sitting on top of her, raking our fingers through and getting these out. And then she got some more. And so I think what's causing her to have this separation is fear of pain, fear that it's going to hurt, fear that this, what's really good for her might be painful for a moment. Is that what holds us back as well from being glorious? That we're afraid to get that close to him because something might have to be removed, something that might have to be pruned according to Jesus' own words? We should not be afraid of that because in that pruning, in that cleansing, we become his church. He will come to us. He will be our Savior, and we will be his glorious flock, showing his glory all over the world, for he is our foundation. He is our Savior. Well, that's what he put on my heart today. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And our closing song basically puts the exclamation mark behind this. It's the church has one foundation. It's Jesus Christ. And as you're singing it, watch for the words that talk about how he cleanses his bride. And say to him, Lord, cleanse me. And you can fill in the blank. Cleanse me here. And he will do it for you. I invite you to stand if you like. And the words will be up on the screen. church has one foundation, tis Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own and 
in heaven, help us to be the people you'd have us to be, individually and corporately as a group, so people will see Jesus, and they'll see him shining through us, and they'll hear his words through us, because we're very simply just echoing his words like a loving spouse. Guide us to be that glorious flock, that glorious church, until that day when we see you in your glory, and we shine forevermore with you. In your name, Jesus, we pray.